G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan, and good to be with you on this very interesting topic. Absolutely. It's always good to be with you on the podcast, of course, but it's a fascinating topic that we've got today, Dad, and we've called today's episode Effective Empathising with Mentalising. So, gee, it's a, a bit of a complicated name in some ways. There's a few buzzwords in there, Dad, but it's a topic that I've certainly enjoyed getting into over the last week. Part of that, I suppose, is just the relevance, I think, of this topic to so many things. So, I suppose before we get too far into it, Dad, do you want to just even maybe build a little bit of the context in terms of where the idea from this episode came from? Because I think it'd be good to even touch on that before we get too far into it today. Okay, and it's interesting that you mentioned the relevance because I've found it's been uncommonly relevant to nearly all the therapy sessions that I've had since really doing a deeper dive into this topic through reading a particular book by Peter Fonagy, a wonderful psychodynamic researcher, and Aya Asen, a family therapist. The book is called Mentalisation-Based Treatment with Families. And I came across this book on mentalisation at a recent conference of clinical psychologists that are referred to in a recent podcast. But anyway, I was really happy to come across a book by Peter Fonagy because I've heard of him being such a respected psychodynamic therapist who does a lot of research. And so I was really interested to read this book on mentalisation and see how much it related to the previous podcasts that we'd done on emotional intelligence. Because emotional intelligence, one of the aspects of that is empathy, being able to put yourself in other people's shoes and see things from their point of view. Well, this is what mentalisation is about. So mentalisation is about looking to understand your own and other people's thoughts and feelings and intentions. What makes people tick? What do I, what do other people think and feel? What do they intend based on their behaviour? What can we understand or gauge from someone's behaviour? And being interested in that kind of understanding of ourselves and others, being interested in reflecting on that and being open to that and learning more about ourselves and others is the heart of mentalisation. And the better we do that, the better our relationships will be and the more it will help our mental health. Well, it's, as you say, Dad, like fascinating topic and it's one thing that's come up a little bit on the podcast in previous episodes in terms of this idea that maybe for a little while, maybe say 60 years ago or so, there was a movement in psychology towards, I think they called it behaviorism. So trying to understand behavior. And it was almost as if there was a notion that everyone was a little bit like a black box, that, you know, everything was very mechanical in terms of, you know, if a person was behaving in this way, then it was very likely that, you know, these were the feelings behind it, all this sort of stuff. Like it was very mechanical, almost rigid in a certain way. And it seems that this idea of mentalization, it almost goes beyond that rigidity. It's part of the idea of how we're all individual, how we all respond differently in certain situations, how we're all different. Is that how you see this idea of mentalization in terms of it? I suppose it expands on the idea of just how, I suppose, unique and different we are in a way. Yes, very much so, because in the early days of behaviour therapy, as you described, they talked about this black box theory, and they thought that if you just look at inputs, like the setting that someone's in, their environment, and what's happening to them, say what cues they're exposed to, and then we look at what happens after a person has acted a certain way or been in a situation, in other words, you look at the rewards and punishments, just by knowing of the setting 
and by knowing what happened afterwards, we'd be able to predict how any person would behave or act in that situation. We didn't need to reflect on the person's intentions or thoughts and feelings. Whereas this turns things around the other way. It says what's inside the black box is the most interesting thing. The most interesting thing is people's thoughts and feelings and intentions. That might be complicated. People might have mixed feelings or people might have some conflict between their thoughts or intentions and feelings. So it's not necessarily straightforward. But the more we're curious and open and interested in other people's reactions, the more we'll get to understand them. And that will basically stem from our capacity to be reflective with ourselves. So mentalisation starts off with being open to reflect on our own behaviour, not just our thinking, also our feelings, but also not just getting stuck in our, our feelings or reactions that way, also be interested in our thinking, interested in ourselves, interested in others. It's looking at a balance in thinking. And the more we're reflective about ourselves, curious, open-minded, the better we're likely to be able to mentalise other people and that will help our relationships in many ways. Well, certainly, Dad, it seems. And oh, just to expand on that a little bit, like this idea of empathy is one that I think comes up a little bit these days and, you know, for good reason too. Like maybe it's a word that we hear a little bit more than we used to as well. And, and I think that's maybe because there's been a, a bit of a recognition maybe for the need for more empathy as a society and even maybe more discussion about how to exhibit empathy in certain ways. But it seems from looking a little bit at this topic that... In some ways, yeah, it's the mechanics of empathy. Like uh, there's been certain things that I've looked at this week where you sort of think, oh, okay, like that makes a little bit more sense. And to me, I suppose, breeding that kind of understanding, that common understanding, like that, that's just going to be something that, that just helps everyone, you know, on individual levels, but, you know, also collectively. So I think this is, yeah, a brilliant topic to be getting into, Dad. Yes, and one of the things that comes up with it is that it's a lot to do with acceptance, accepting ourselves as people, with our flaws or quirks or our idiosyncratic ways of looking at things or doing things and accepting others in a similar way. So that's one thing I like about it. It's about an acceptance and mentalisation will work best in relation to ourselves and others if we're a little bit kind or compassionate in reflecting on our own and others' behaviour and if we're looking for an understanding because there's a lot of psychology that can be quite individualistic a lot of therapy is individual therapy and so a lot of it's looking at the person's own reactions in particular situations and sometimes there's not so much focus on others or what might our behaviour be on our partner, our children, our friends or vice versa. So one of the things I like about mentalisation is it's very much looking about our interactions with others and how others might see us and our understanding of how others might see us and their reactions in turn of how they think that we see them. So it's a very interpersonal thing, but it is also quite accepting. You start off from looking for an understanding or appreciation, if you like, more insight into our own reactions and behaviour and believing that will be helpful. Because again, some therapies can sometimes be a little bit too quick to look at change or correction. And mentalisation starts off with this goal of understanding rather than correction. 
rather than I've got to fix this up or I've got to stop that habit or I'm a bit weak for not doing that or oh, I'm ashamed for being depressed or reacting in this particular way or being stuck with my grief for a long period of time. A mentalisation approach is more about looking to appreciate what might be influencing that and in turn with other people being not quick to judge, more quick to empathise, being curious. I wonder why someone might be responding in that particular way. It'll make sense at some level based on their thoughts, their feelings and reactions. So it's accepting, it's interpersonal, it's not just about correcting straight off. And I think it's a nice balance to, for example, cognitive behavioural therapy and a number of other kind of therapies that have a strong problem-solving approach. It reminds us, start off with a deeper reflective understanding. We're more likely to proceed in a more effective way if we start off understanding ourselves and others better. Well, it's funny when you say it like that because, you know, it's one of those things that just, it just seems such common sense in terms of, you know, if you fix a problem before you're even aware of the extent of what the problem is, well, it's not necessarily a solution. It's more of like a temporary fix sort of thing. So, like, it seems to me, you know, if nothing else, it, it highlights the, uh, the importance of this topic, Dad. So we better get into it because we've, we've made, you know, enough broad statements and, you know, they're, they're all very important. But I think we better start stepping our way through this topic because we've got a little bit to get through. But... Let's just start off with, I suppose, a bit of a basic idea of, you know, like if we really simplify it down, what is mentalising? We've touched on it a little bit, but if we look at it, I suppose, in, in just very simplified terms. Okay, so it's reflecting on our thoughts and feelings and intentions. So the emphasis is on reflecting, looking at some kind of understanding. So part of it is looking at, well, what do we want? What moves us? What are our main values or what interests us in life? The more clear we are about those kind of things, we sometimes talk in terms of meaning and purpose even, our thoughts, feelings, our values that way. That can act as a guiding light, if you like. That can help us see what direction we want to go in. But in any particular situation, having some kind of thoughts about our interests, our wishes, as we reflect on that and have a sense of what we're on about, what I would like to do today, what I might like to do this afternoon, being open to what friends, family members, others that we're interacting with, what they might want in a particular situation. So part of it is helping us have some kind of direction or understanding. But often when we talk about mentalisation, we'll be talking about some kind of psychological challenge or conflict. Certainly in a therapy situation, that's how we'll use it. And then... That relates to looking to have a better understanding of how I might see things, how others see things, and the differences between those things. It's really being curious and interested in how other people see the situation that we're in. Say you have a family looking to address a certain challenging situation. How does each person look at that? It might even be looking at how much time a teenager and younger child in a family might spend on the internet. So a family that looks to mentalise that situation further will be looking to understand each person's interests in that kind of situation and let people have input about that. It won't be just some rules imposed in a certain kind of way or it might be, say, a couple of people in a relationship and they might have some conflict that's showing an interest in how other people think and feel about that situation, what they'd prefer. So we can use it especially in conflict situations or times of stress as well as getting an idea of what kind of things move us. 
And so it seems to me on just a, a super duper simplified level, like correct me if this is almost a little bit too simplified in a way, but like the idea of like mentalization to me, it almost seems a little bit, you know, we've all got emotions, beliefs, desires, and intentions, and they're all going to affect our behavior in certain ways. And we might have a behavior that on the surface, you know, seems similar in, in different situations, but there could actually be a lot of things under the surface affecting that behavior. Like the, the thing that comes to mind for me, for example, is, you know, teenagers come home from school. Like I would have been guilty of this, Dad. You know, you come home from school and, you know, you walk in and you go, oh, Rowan, how's your day? And you go, yeah, it's good. And, you know, oh, yeah, did anything happen? Oh, not much. You know, in terms of on the surface, like that's a, it, it's a short answer. It, you know, it, you're essentially kind of blocking the flow of the conversation. But there could be so many motivating factors behind that. Like there could be, you know, something embarrassing that happened at school. There could be, you could be distracted by, you know, what's on TV at the moment. If you're a, a teenager, you could be, you know, as your phone as well. Like there could be so many certain things, like whether it be positive emotions, negative emotions that go into basically that behaviour, like that go into the response in that situation. And it seems to me that mentalising is a little bit to do with unpacking exactly what those motivating factors are. Yes, yes, and what you're describing there too. If people are looking to have a conversation with each other, then it helps to have the setting that will suit for that as well, picking the time when people are able to discuss something more fully or ready to discuss something more fully. But when people are prepared to engage in that kind of conversation, just say if the timing is more conducive, being interested and curious about how other people see things can help so an obvious situation will be in a relationship where there's some kind of conflict it could be as simple as where to go on a holiday but it could be more about household routines or even financial challenges or it could be how the family manages a certain difficult situation that comes up a lot of what mentalization is about is genuinely being interested in the other person's point of view and believing that if you get more of a sense or understanding of the other person's point of view and them yours and maybe some of the reasons behind that, you're more likely to come up with better solutions that suit you both. It also could mean that if a family is facing some challenging or difficult situation, or it could be a work group, it's the idea that if you draw on each person's perspective who's involved, genuinely being interested in what people's thoughts, feelings, interests, what their motives are, what they want to get out of that situation... The idea of mentalising is drawing on that, that greater understanding and appreciation will help you get a better solution for the overall group and more buy-in from people. So basically, it's a somewhat respectful, kind, compassionate kind of approach where everyone's interested, not just in the way they see things, but others as well. It's looking for the win-win. And it seems to me that there's maybe also a bit of an aspect too, like that seems to well relate to maybe the interpersonal side of things in terms of like when we're dealing with those around us, like our friends, our family, that sort of thing. But but maybe there's an aspect of it in terms of like when we're dealing with ourself as well. Like it seems to me that mentalization, if we if it's about this idea of understanding in a way, it's understanding the motivating factors behind our behaviors. 
Like one of the things that we spoke about last week was that idea of emotional hijack. Like there's certain situations where we might get in where our emotions are getting too much for us and we're finding that we're acting in a certain way before maybe our thinking brain kind of kicks in, before we really rationalise exactly what we're doing. It seems to me that if we can develop our ability to mentalise with others but also with ourselves then maybe we can recognise when those situations are coming and and maybe get on top of them before they really get to that point of, of hijacking us in that way. Yes, and so anything that helps our reflection is worthwhile. That's where some people will keep a diary or a journal. That's where a number of homework exercises in various psychological therapies invite people to note down what their thoughts and feelings are in a particular situation and how they reacted. So a lot of this is helping take distance from a situation. But it also relates to sometimes the benefit of having a friend or someone else as a sounding board. That whole idea of a sounding board is as we hear ourselves speak and express some of the mixed thoughts and feelings we have about a particular situation, that can help us have a more integrated understanding. And that's a lot of what will happen in psychological therapy. The therapist will be open So whatever the person brings up in talking about a particular topic often and the person can just talk for a period of time and in talking around a particular issue that lets different kinds of even deeper or hidden feelings come up or other thoughts that haven't been processed so much or reflecting on an action or a behaviour that was a bit confusing to the person themselves. And that process itself, rather than fixing anything or some particular strategy, is one of the most useful things about psychological therapy, as well as confiding to a friend about a particular problem. Well, we mentioned at the start, but it really seems to me this would be a central part of of psychological therapy in a way, Dad. And it also seems that psychological therapy would be a good example maybe of mentalising and maybe building a mentalisation environment or relationship for lack of a better term but I wonder if we could get into maybe what some other examples of effective mentalizing are. I wonder if you have any other examples that that would help build on this idea of exactly what mentalizing is. Well I think one example that really illustrates that is something that can come up in marital therapy or relationship therapy but also it can apply to a conversation that a couple can have, any couple in a relationship especially if there's been some kind of issue of concern between them or conflict or stress and part of it is a conversation where each partner in turn has the opportunity to say some things about what they think or feel about a particular issue, say a family conflict that had come up, or it could be a financial concern or a difference of opinion of how they go about parenting. It could be any kind of issue. But one person expresses how they think and feel about a certain situation. The other one listens. And what really helps is if the partner can reflect back what they've heard in their own words but looking to express it from the first person's point of view. The more accurately the person can put that, the more helpful it is because virtually all of us are going to feel some benefit or appreciation or maybe relief, but certainly a benefit from feeling understood by another, especially someone that we really care about. Then it makes so much difference if the person has listened attentively and can reflect back fairly accurately what their partner has said, 
then for the second person to say something about how they think or feel about that particular issue, that similar issue. Then again, the first person listens and looks to reflect back what they've heard, something of not just the words the person has said, but something of their intent of what they're looking to convey, something of their thoughts and feelings about that similar kind of issue. So you're talking about one topic or one issue, you're putting forward your various views and showing a genuine curiosity and interest in the other person's view with the belief that if you can get on a kind of wavelength or have some kind of understanding, you'll both be better off. It'll help the connection between you, the feeling of being understood, and also believing that that could lead to more helpful kind of solutions that suit you both, as opposed to one person correcting the other, or vice versa, or just looking to dominate, or not taking turns in expressing what they think, or blurting out what they think in response to what the first person has said, rather than pausing and taking the time to listen and then look to reflect back and try to see, to have an accurate understanding of what the other person said. But that's not easy to do that. Even that simple exercise I mentioned, the first person has to think of, well, what would they say? They need to manage their emotions while they say it to get it across clearly enough, hopefully fully enough, but not too much detail that the other person can follow. And then the other person has to be open to listening, managing their emotions or feelings at the time, inhibiting any reaction to just try and defend or blurt out their own point of view, more taking the time to reflect back, using their own words to convey the intent. That's actually quite a complicated process. But if people are genuinely looking to attend to that, then that really is a model of genuinely looking to mentalise the other and people tend to get better at that with practice and interest. Well, that's a, an interesting one, Dad. It reminds me of something that I saw recently, and it's basically a, I suppose, discussion device, for lack of a better term, but basically it's this idea called a steel man. And in discussion, in debating, in rhetoric, in basically English class, you had this idea called a straw man in arguments, in discussion. And a straw man is basically when you're in a discussion with someone or, or about a topic and what you do is you build up their side of things to basically a much bigger exaggeration of what they're saying. And then instead of actually dealing with what they're saying, you deal with this kind of model that you've created, this exaggerated, inflated model of what they're saying. But the steel man is this idea where I think it was his name's Brett Weinstein, his name is, a, a former professor out of America. He had this idea of a steel man where basically he was moderating a discussion between two people who obviously disagreed in this discussion. He said, before we go any further, I want you both to say the other person's discussion points or you know arguments, for lack of a better word, in a debating sense. But I want you to say the other person's discussion points back to them in a way that they would not only agree with, but that they basically couldn't even say themselves. Like, I want you to articulate their side of things better than they could themselves. And only when we've reached that, I suppose, mutual point of understanding of, you know, me saying to you, Dad, yeah, you understand where I'm coming from. And you know, I say to you, yeah, you get exactly where I'm coming from. It's only at that point that they can then move the discussion on to introduce new information. And then the idea behind that is that if you go too far down a discussion, potentially when there is maybe a little bit of conflict or disagreement, well, if you're not understanding each other for a period of time, well, 
you might stop trying to understand that other person in a way. And, and then it does become just about, you know, I've just got to get my point across in the most forceful or funny or, you know, expressive or, you know, appealing way as possible. It's not necessarily about coming to a, a mutual place of understanding where we both gain something from the conversation. Both might have to make a slight concession here or there. But at the end of the day, everyone wins because they've learned something from the experience. But I think it almost gets that idea of what you were saying there in terms of it seems to me that with a lot of situations, we almost need to find that mutual point of agreement before we can even move on. Otherwise, potentially we're you know, not understanding each other in a way that's just not going to breed kind of further understanding down the road. Yes, and the way you describe that, it's so much about collaboration, isn't it? That approach that you described, that steel man. And it reminds me, many years ago, the Dalai Lama came to Geelong, to Kadinia Park. And it was just wonderful to see him and hear him express these words that were clearly different from other presentations he'd done in Melbourne at the same time. But in Geelong, I remember this statement that he made later on that really struck me, the way that he expressed it as well. And he basically said so much comes down to one word, dialogue. So the notion of true dialogue, truly being interested in what the other person says and vice versa, there's such a collaboration in that. And I think behind it is what you were suggesting earlier. It's this principle or belief that wait a minute, I can learn something about myself as well as learn more about this other person if I'm truly open and curious and have that, if you like, not knowing approach, which goes well with mentalising, not knowing, being open and curious, hey, I might learn more about myself, this other person and about our relationship. I think that's such a good point. And I think it's something that, to be honest, like we have as kids a little bit, it seems to me, like, you know, I suppose the classic thing, Again, Dad, I'm not a parent here myself, but, you know, from observing certain situations, definitely not with myself, but from observing other people, you know, with kids, there's this idea, you know, that maybe that you get, get annoyed at them for a certain situation and they'll tell you exactly what they think you think in a situation. So, you know, it might be a little bit miffed with them for, for something or other and they go, oh, you know, you think I'm a failure or, you know, you're always getting me in trouble in this situation as if it's, you know, this this grand narrative about their entire life. And there seems to me like when they're doing that, they're almost confirming with you in a way. They're saying, is this really kind of what you think of me in this situation? And we almost move away from that a little bit. But, I suppose this idea of, you know, what we're talking about today, it's how can we, I suppose, recreate some of those, I suppose, little moments that maybe kids have of going, oh, you just think this, which then gives the parent, of course, the opportunity to say, well, no, of course I don't think that. You know, I love you and, you know, you're a very well-behaved person most of the time, but it's just this one single behaviour that, you know, I've got a little bit of an issue with sort of thing. So kids seem to give us that opportunity to even open the discussion. Yes, and it's a very important thing that you're mentioning. It actually comes up in a number of families and say there might be a number of teenagers who would present at our practice with a difficulty with eating or approaching their studies in some way. There might be some other kind of problem that they have. They might have a problem of inattention. And they might feel that their parents are judging or admonishing them a certain way and maybe the parent might be expressing concern about their eating behaviour but often rather than intending to judge their children, often the parent in that situation will be concerned 
and actually it'll be more love and care that might motivate their desire to help guide their child in a different direction. But things can get lost in translation. And it is a real pity when people care about others for that sometimes to be misunderstood and not come across. And that's where actually what we talk about in the next podcast episode will include some of the games that family therapists might use to help family members get on a similar wavelength in discussing an issue or concern. Well, that'd be good to chat about that next week, Dad, particularly about those games in terms of maybe, yeah, how to to boost our ability to mentalise and that sort of thing. But I suppose just one final example before we move on, like it'd be, you know, remiss of me to let a sports example go past, Dad, but the idea of leading teams in the AFL, which was something that came through a few years ago and, you know, basically revolutionised the way the AFL was run in many ways in terms of the clubs and club cultures and all this sort of thing. But it was basically a program where they went round to different clubs and they got players from each of the clubs to individually sit out in front of all of their teammates and then invited each of their teammates to basically tell them all of the grievances that they had with the way that their teammate was going about their professionalisation, ability to communicate, you know, ability to put in as a teammate, all these sorts of things. It just... It was as if they got everyone out the front and then it was just, you know, air all the dirty laundry and then let's kind of deal with it as a team. And it seems to me that that really was picking up on almost another aspect of of mentalisation in a way, which is this idea of, you know, get things out there too. Like it's not just about how we communicate again, like it is about, I suppose, encouraging that communication in the first place as well. Yes, and I remember actually the Richmond Football Club went through a process where the coach, I believe, Damien Hardwick, was prepared to question his own approach, not have such a hierarchical approach just before they won a grand final. It seemed that the culture improved at the club where they brought in that acceptance of vulnerability. And then I believe it might have been the captain, Trent Cotchen, who could also say some things in front of the group, allowing himself to be vulnerable, one person after another similarly. And so you hear that about a number of teams and elite sporting cultures these days, rather than having to seem that they're masters of the universe and on top of everything and just invincible, more it's allowing for that kind of vulnerability. It's really allowing people to be human And that also allows a kind of renewing of our understanding of ourselves and each other. And there's something that I think that adds to a bit of vitality that comes with that. But it also means that there's a group of people who show that they're interested to grow together. And I suppose another example of that, Dad, is the idea of a misunderstanding because, you know, on on the face of things, like a misunderstanding could be a a negative thing. It could lead to conflict, which could, I suppose, hurt our ability to mentalise in some ways. But do you want to just speak to the idea of how a misunderstanding can be a good thing because it can be something that we can almost flip on its head, isn't it? Yes, there was a quote in Peter Fonagy's book that nothing gets mentalising going better than a helpful misunderstanding. What a great quote that is, that a misunderstanding can be helpful. In other words, it can be a starting point to having an interest in the other person's point of view. Now, again, that highlights the importance of having those, if you like, positive aspects of mentalising, being open-minded, flexible, curious, and a bit humble, you know, not knowing, being prepared to learn something more from the other person, being interested in their point of view. And I think that helps contrast with what's not so helpful, a way of dealing with 
mentalising. I think that most of us would relate to being in this position ourselves, maybe not handling it the best way ourselves and maybe others, but maybe being not so open to discussing something through, maybe having been a bit rigid or judgmental, a bit black and white in our thinking in some ways, or maybe setting out to correct others in some ways rather than start off from a point of understanding and anything also that's a bit unreflective, just walking off and think, no, they're wrong, that's how it is, I see it this way, they didn't listen, this is how they should see it. Basically that unreflective black and white way that's not going to basically influence anyone. I've often thought the best way we can influence people is with our ears. But with that genuine, open, curious attitude, it doesn't mean we're capitulating. We can still hopefully convey our own point of view, but then sometimes one plus one equals more than two. You put each person's view together and sometimes you can come up with an overview or perspective that allows you both to be yourselves and sometimes solves a problem in a better way than either of you would have thought of yourselves. Well, it seems to me maybe that idea of like misunderstanding, like it could be in some ways a bit of an indicator of how someone's going a little bit with mentalising because you know if you and I have a misunderstanding, it seems that I could almost go about it in terms of, well, this is an opportunity for me to grow. There was clearly a blind spot that I had in that situation that allowed me to miss something. Or I could go, oh, no, stuff you, Dad. I was right. You were wrong. Like, there's no way that I'm going to come to terms with the fact that I was wrong in that situation. I could, you know, get even more stubborn in my ways. So it seems that that could be almost a little bit of an indicator about how people go about it in the first place. Yes, it reminds me of an earlier podcast we did on conflict. We talked about different animals representing different ways of dealing with conflict. So naturally an owl would be that win-win approach. But what about a shark? A forceful approach. Wait a minute, I'm going to go for my interests. To hell with what you think. A forceful approach not a mentalising approach. But another kind of non-mentalising approach would be being the turtle. Oh, conflict's no good, nothing will come up from this. Best to keep my mouth shut, just walk off. I won't get what I want out of the situation, but I'm not going to engage either. Again, not mentalising. Or a teddy bear, a teddy bear might be thinking in terms of, well, I'll try and be nice to the other person, get their approval, the relationship's important to me, but the teddy bears maybe let go of what the teddy bear might want, what the teddy bear's interests are, rather than realising there might be scope for some kind of compromise, even if not a wonderful win-win. So again, we can see that whether people are mentalising or not mentalising so well will influence people's conflict style. Certainly, and look, Dad, I want to do something I've never done on the podcast before. I want to take the opportunity to have a bit of a rant here because this is something that... really came to mind for me when you were describing that then and it's you know it comes up a little bit to be honest but it's this idea of an apology and I like I remember when I was a kid like you taught us all how to do an apology and it was this idea of an apology has three parts you got to say you're sorry you got to say what you're sorry for and you got to say what you're going to put in place to not find yourself in that situation you know trespassing on someone else is the notion of it the amount of times that I hear someone say I apologise for blah, 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 blah. It's like, right, like, feel free to apologise. Like, when are you going to apologise? Like, first of all, you say sorry and you have some concept of, you know, what you've done wrong and what you're going to do. Like, to me, it's just such a, a 
great example of people who lack the ability to mentalise in a way, like, you know, dare I say some particular politicians, like it comes out a little bit, but it's those people that just say, I apologise for this, and, you know, it's all in their own terms as if, you know, like they clearly feel bad that they're in that situation, but there's no concept of how it's affected other people and this sort of stuff. Like, to me, that's a, a very good example that we maybe see a little bit of people who don't make that extra effort to mentalise. Yes, I think that's a very important example, the difference between a genuine apology where someone appreciates the impact that their behaviour might have had on someone else. That's really showing an interest in the other person's thoughts and feelings and intentions rather than what we otherwise might call a notional apology. Someone's just saying something just for the sake of it or to save themselves trouble or so they won't get in more trouble afterwards and it doesn't sound sincere. And there's a parallel notion to this that, again, I Asen and Peter Fonagy mention in their book, and it's about genuine forgiveness compared to notional forgiveness. So just say if someone's apologising to you, the difference between being able to genuinely forgive someone because you've also showed some interest in what their motives might have been in the situation or their intentions or maybe someone just slipped up in some way that's quite understandable. And it makes a difference if... Also, if someone's apologising to us, if we make some kind of effort or have some interest in where they might have been coming from. Whereas notional forgiveness might be, oh, I forgive you, but there's no true understanding or attempt to appreciate something from the other person's point of view. So it means also that their apology won't land so well. So I like this notion also with mentalising. There's a degree of responsibility built into it. Like if we come to a conflict situation or a challenging and emotional situation, we're also taking some responsibility, not just for how we act or what we've done, but we're interested in the impact on the other person and how they see that. So it's this truly interactional kind of thing when we're mentalising and it's when you appreciate that as individuals, as people, we're actually connected, maybe in more ways than meet the eye, if you look for that consideration, that true genuine consideration for the other person and their feelings, again, that goes a long way to build trust and our ways of collaborating and learning from each other. Well, very much so, Dad. And thank you for indulging me in that little rant. And I apologise for, uh, for going down that road. But anyway. <laughs> I think I can see where you're coming from with <laughs> yeah. that rant. Fair enough. But anyway, well, we better uh, keep moving on because we've got a little bit more to get through here. What I wonder then is what influences our capacity to mentalise? Like what influences our ability to mentalise? Like it's something that I find interesting when we talk about empathy, I think in general, there's almost this notion that everyone has the same amount of empathy to give and when people aren't empathetic in a situation, like it's because they chose not to be. Like I think sometimes they maybe just simply don't possess the ability to be empathetic. Like, I wonder if you could maybe speak to that idea in terms of what affects our ability to, to mentalise. Yes, well, I'm sure most of us can relate to the idea that sometimes we'll do it better than others. Sometimes, if you like, we're you know, more alert and we've got energy about ourselves and we're in a setting that's conducive to, if you like, have a conversation about something and show an interest in the other person. But there'll be other times when we're quite stressed, we might be stressed or tired or we've got other demands on us at the time. And so that's going to affect our capacity 
to be open-minded. So this is something to do with our frontal lobe functioning, if you like, and it's also something to do with our actually our right hemisphere functioning that sort of picks up on other people's facial cues and picks up a sense of how other people might see things, their view of the world, that actually takes a degree of effort and a little bit of focus to be able to do that well. Now, when we're under stress, as we've talked about before, our frontal lobes can tend to shut. We can be more limbic system, fight and flight. So it's going to make a, a big difference if we can keep our emotions somewhat regulated in the first place. Uh, because again, if we can, especially if it is a conflict situation, the other person feeling a bit heard or understood, that's going to help the other person settle as well and in turn ourselves. So I think it's fair enough to cut ourselves a bit of slack if we have been extra stressed or tired to not quite have been as considerate or thoughtful or whatever as we otherwise might be. But it does help to manage our emotions and be ready for especially important conversations because it does make a big difference to the other person, whether they feel heard or not in important kind of situations. So certainly being under stress is one of the main things. And most of us are going to feel more stress of a conflict in our own family situation or intimate relationships. So it's allowing for that. We're more likely to encounter that emotional hijack you referred to earlier if it's situations that we deeply care about. But that's where also it helps to take these kind of things into account so there's more chance of dealing with challenges in a harmonious way. Well, I think that's a good point that you make, particularly about... Even once you learn all this sort of stuff, have a real concept of it. Like It's not as if we're going to be on top of things at all times. And I think that's potentially something that I've found a little bit well, helpful, really, about the idea of you know mentalisation is you can even be in situations where maybe you didn't mentalise something so well and it can be helpful to look back on it and go, oh, you know, maybe if I was to you know approach it kind of in theory without all the you know baggage of my everyday life, I might have approached it a little bit differently. But... Dad, I think it would even be good to touch on, I suppose, maybe how someone's upbringing could affect their ability and, and capacity to mentalise. Because obviously, we're all going to have times within ourselves where we're more stressed, where we're less stressed. That's going to affect us on an individual level. But I think it's a, a very important component of mentalisation to, I suppose, understand a little bit about how it's developed and how some people might have been through circumstances of no fault of their own, but it might affect their ability to mentalise a little bit. Do you want to just maybe touch on that point a little bit too? Yes, that's very important about people's early childhood years, the environments that people were raised in, home environments. It makes an enormous difference if people are raised in a safe and secure environment where parents, where caregivers are attuned to the person. Because how's an infant going to learn more about thoughts, feelings, impulses, it'll learn a lot from interactions with their caregivers. So if a parent is attuned, they'll understand if the infant is tired or frustrated or in pain or cross about something. And when caregivers accept that in a loving way and they're attuned to the child's needs and they give that kind of support, that means that the child not only learns to grow up and feel the world is a safer, more benign place where you can trust other people and learn from other people, but the infant is more likely to learn about one's own thoughts, feelings and reactions because, in a sense, they're 
noticed, paid attention to, in some ways reflected back to them or appreciated in some way. Whereas just say if someone's been raised in an environment with significant abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, neglect. What that means is the child's being raised in a setting where their own needs and interests and reactions aren't really being attended to so much. It's like they don't count so much. So what's going to happen is it's going to be more difficult for the infant to have a more integrated understanding of their own reactions because they're not leading to some kind of fairly consistent, supported response. And that's where, as adults, if we're in a conversation with someone else in a conflict situation, it still helps to be validating to the other person. Some kind of validation, even acknowledging somewhat what their point of view is, that's a kind of recognition and acceptance of how other people see things. Well, the same with children growing up. If their needs are being attended to, it's an acceptance and recognition of that. Whereas sometimes people are raised in a home environment where they might feel that they don't belong, they weren't meant to be there, they were just in the way, they were an imposition to their parents or well, they didn't react the way they were meant to. It's harder for that person to grow up also having a sense of agency, being able to influence things in a constructive way and likely to be somewhat less reflective. And that's where a lot of therapies for people who have had more severe long-term abuse, trauma, neglect in childhood, where their needs weren't met, where we would say that they had a more insecure attachment or disorganised attachment, meaning their needs weren't so attended to, so they found it harder to bond well with their caregivers, then a lot of those therapies involve an aspect that we call limited reparenting. This is largely looking for the therapist to be attuned to the client's thoughts, feelings and reactions, including unexpressed reactions or conflicted thoughts and feelings and have ways in a very supportive and validating way, non-judgmental way, helping that come up to the fore so that helps the person then mentalise their own reactions, hopefully have a sense of validation as they have more understanding and have that recognised by another as well, and then hopefully that generalises to their other relationships. Because if in childhood we feel our needs have been attended to and you grow up with some level of self-acceptance because you've been accepted by those around you, it also helps you learn to trust others, to feel that they might be supportive or treat you well and that means that you're more likely to generalise your learning to others. Whereas when people have been raised in environments that were not so supportive, they're going to often find it more difficult to learn from others, including respond to people in positions of authority, other caregivers, teachers, coaches, therapists. Well, I think that is just such an important thing to keep in mind, really, when you know when we're interacting really with people from all walks of life and all you know life circumstances, because it's something I think you know is really central to psychology and something that's probably not touched on really enough in the most explicit sense that it could be, I guess, and. I got a little bit of an analogy about this dad in terms of the way that I think about it and look it's absolutely not to trivialize things in any way because after all we're talking about you know people who are going through really difficult childhood circumstances and really not looking to trivialize that but I suppose yeah just I suppose make sense of it in a way too but the way that I almost think about it is like you've got a yo-yo 
as kids, we've got a yo-yo. And if we're in a stable, loving, cared-for environment, it's almost like when we throw the yo-yo, it's going to come straight back up to us. It's like, a, you know, it's a regular yo-yo, responds to gravity. But if we're in a chaotic environment, it's almost like when we throw the yo-yo, expect it to go down and come back up, but it might go off at a right angle. It might go straight up. It might go outward somewhere. Like there's just almost so much chaos that we can't develop any predictability around what the yo-yo is going to do. And it's almost like on one level, if we do have a predictable, stable environment, well, over time, we can maybe get a little bit better with the yo-yo. And then we learn how to walk the dog. And then we learn how to rock the cradle and almost do these tricks because we've been able to manipulate that stable base that we have a lot of confidence in. Whereas if every time you throw the yo-yo, it goes out in a completely different direction than you intended to. And, you know, it doesn't come back when you want it to. And, you know, it's not as if anyone's teaching you how to use the yo-yo. Like in some ways, you've got a faulty yo-yo. But at the same time, it's going to be a lot harder to get to the stage where you can, you know, walk the dog, rock the cradle. Like, there's no predictability in terms of, like, the yo-yo. And so, like, it seems to me a little bit like that's, in some ways, what a stable environment around children provides in terms of, like, the predictability of the yo-yo. They know, you know, in this situation, if I act in this way, you know, it's very likely that, you know, it's going to be one of these few kind of responses. And then, you know, I can form some sort of, I suppose, understanding around that and, you know, begin to act on that premise and then, you know, develop more understanding in more ways. But at the same time, again, if you're not able to develop that basic understanding, that stable platform, well, how on earth are we to expect someone to, you know, essentially rock up to a yo-yo tournament? Everyone else has got, you know, top line yo-yo, like you've just almost been handed this yo-yo, it's not necessarily your fault at all, but you're expected to do the exact same things as someone else. And it seems to me that, again, like absolutely not to trivialise because the circumstances for us getting different yo-yos are not something to trivialise, but at the same time, like I think it speaks to this notion that there's an element of the environment where if we can create a you know stable base around us, it gives us a platform to almost move off from. Whereas if we're always looking for that stable platform, well then you know there's always likely to be a little bit more chaos around, and it's, it's a lot harder to gain predictability of those around us too. Yes, it makes so much difference to have basically had that confidence, learning more about collaboration and trust. And that's one thing about developing trusting relationships in situations that we might refer to as, say, secure attachment. When children are raised in loving, safe, protective environments, they're more likely to develop that kind of trust. And what happens then is people tend to have a more ready confidence in a sense that what goes around comes around. And people then can more readily focus on what positive energy they're bringing to a situation and will more naturally be looking at, well, what can they do to help others in some way? What can they do to contribute? What can they do to improve a situation? And so, yes, having that kind of mindset is a great boon compared to if people are in a situation where they lack that trust. And that's where... When people are more wary in that way, they don't count on that collaboration, that predictability or mutual interest, then often that's an important part of the psychological therapies helping people in that situation. 
basically looking to develop a little bit more of that trust, first of all, in the therapy kind of relationship, but then looking at their ways of interacting with other people that tend to lead things to go better and people feeling then that they count more, people having more of a sense of agency in the way that they manage with boundaries, if you like, being more able to assert themselves but still let other people in, themselves having a little bit more grey thinking rather than black and white thinking itself, rather than thinking things will always go this way or never go like that or there's something defective about me. People develop, if you like, more blended, more nuanced kind of views of themselves and other people and then that helps greatly. Well, I suppose the other point that that makes to me, Dad, as well, is that you know, like we talk about, you know, obviously like a, an environment in childhood, but you know, you touched on it there. Like, it's not something that can't be improved later on. Like, it's not something that we can't work on in a way. And like, I assume therapy would would be one example of a way that we could improve our ability to mentalize in terms of maybe developing that relationship, developing that understanding, and then it would almost be like we can apply that understanding in other situations in a way I wonder I wonder if there's an element to which the therapist is modeling that type of relationship it's almost like they're saying hey hold on like it's you know I understand that you know like you've been through a lot but in this situation right here you know you're going to be heard you know you're going to be respected like I'm going to do my very best to understand where you're coming from and then it seems to me that from that level you can maybe build things up a little bit. Like, how do we go about developing our ability to mentalise further? Yes, a lot of it is about that acceptance of oneself, treating oneself with a bit of compassion and also reflection. So a lot in therapy is very reflective. Thinking about situations where we might have acted a certain way and maybe not being happy with how that's going. Looking at what we might have thought and felt in that particular situation that might have motivated us in some way do we need to learn some other strategies for if you like emotional regulation or managing our arousal level do we need to look at different ways of establishing effective boundaries in our relationships or our ways of dealing with conflict our ways of expressing ourselves in i statements rather than you this you that i feel this i think that i'd prefer such and such so basically respecting other people's point of view but also giving ourselves the right to have our own and having an interest that each person has that kind of right and so yes yeah, some of the main things that you see especially when people have had very harsh childhoods a very complicated family background in terms of abuse and neglect what you see is people gradually developing more a way of putting their thoughts and feelings into words having a little bit more understanding and acceptance of why they might have reacted in a certain kind of way, maybe prioritising something about a way they'd like something to be different for their kind of interests. And you certainly notice in terms of people's relationships, people tend to become a bit more discerning in their relationships, looking for friendships or relationships where other people will treat them well as though they count. You can partly tell that by whether the person's genuinely prepared to listen to them and so where it feels somewhat two-way, and so where people are open to developing new acquaintanceships, maybe new friendships, able to assert themselves further in some way, hopefully finding some things that they like doing that suit them, that also helps your sense of agency, but then hopefully 
having some experiences of being in somewhat stressful situations or even situations involving a degree of conflict and gradually feeling having a way of being able to put their thoughts or feelings further but also looking and hopefully experiencing other people considering them as well. And the more that happens, the more people have those kind of experiences, the more that they can develop some kind of basic trust, especially with people that they are closer to. And then the other thing that becomes, if you like, more practised is the ability to notice more about how someone else might be reacting. There may be checking with them what their point of view is. If you like, maybe noticing something about someone else and look, I'm wondering if you're thinking such and such in this situation or I've noticed that you know, when you did such and such, I'm wondering were you reacting to what I said earlier about whatever, I was just wanting to clear the air, if you like, and then checking with the other person. And of course, we'll chat a little bit more next week about some specific strategies around our ability to mentalise further, because I know you've got some goodies up your sleeve there, Dad, from therapy and all this sort of stuff that'll be good to go through because it does highlight these points in a way and certainly found it helpful myself even going through this sort of stuff. But I suppose from what you were speaking about there, there was one thing I just wanted to highlight, and that's that it seems to me that you know there's almost anything that's going to basically enhance our ability to mentalize and empathize it's to improve our curiosity or it's to acknowledge our curiosity or it's to explore our curiosity in a way and you know even whether it be things through like stories movies even you know conversations that we have with people anything that enhances our understanding about where someone else is coming from what they've been through what they mean in a certain situation, you know, why they might mean something different, why they might be acting in a way that's different to us. Like anything that enhances our understanding of those situations is going to really improve our ability to mentalise because it's almost like we get a whole extra set of tools from them. You know, part of this is recognising that, you know, we all have our own unique set of experiences and all this sort of stuff, but so does everyone else and that's going to affect their ability to mentalise and there might be certain things that they're able to comprehend that we're not even able to and vice versa and all this sort of stuff. Like I think that speaks to like the sum of the parts is greater than the whole idea that you were speaking about before. But the other point that I wanted to make on that, and I think it's something that we've come so far with in recent times, but it has highlighted a little bit to me going into this idea of mentalisation this week and that's just how much further I think that we could go to attempt to mentalise across cultures and across subgroups uh, and to other people in society who we may not necessarily have a whole lot of kind of on the surface, you know, similarities with in a way. Like, you know, one thing that I think a little bit maybe after chatting about this is that a lot of time when maybe, you know, men talk about women, for example, or women talk about men, like it's not necessarily from this place of mentalisation. And, and, you know, even, you know, obviously there's ethnic groups in society have been mistreated in a range of ways. Like we should be approaching it from this place of mentalisation, from this genuine understanding, it seems, has to be kind of the first step. And with that genuine understanding, there's, there's almost a level of, not necessarily sacrifice or compromise involved because, you know, we're getting something out of it. But I think we do need to get past something in a way. We've got to accept that, you know, there's 
going to be things that we don't know. And if we can, you know, approach a situation with real genuine curiosity, like that's going to be so much better for us on an individual level. But, you know, how much better is that going to be for everyone if we have this tool to communicate all together to kind of say, hold on, I think there's a misunderstanding here. Let's all take a step back and then we can proceed forward together. Like that seems to be such a central part of what mentalization is. Yes, I think that's a very good point. The curiosity, the openness to there being, well, unlimited different points of view. And it can be challenging in some ways to also recognise or confront our own prejudices. We're all going to have prejudices. We're also all going to have certain ways that we see things or do things that have maybe become a little bit rigid or a little bit stuck over a period of time. And I think that's one of the good things at a cultural level now, looking at things even like gender diversity. Even that's not the binary situation that so many of us, myself included, would have thought maybe not that long ago. And so I think that's one example where there's an issue with the whole world, if you like, is trying to come to terms with a more complex way of looking at things and accepting a plurality of different points of view. But there'll be many different areas where, if you like, we could have the experience of my karma ran over my dogma, which is a good thing. <laughs> when we have a certain way of looking at things, but events unfold in a way that help us have a different point of view and we can be deliberately open to that with our workmates, with our family members, in our relationships, being open to this idea, we can always learn more about ourselves and other people and our relationships and the settings in which we find ourselves by being open to different people's points of view. Well, I think that's such a great point, Dad. Brilliant point to finish on there. And it's been absolutely brilliant on my behalf looking into all this sort of stuff today, Dad. I suppose the, the notion that I'm really left with is, you know, like the thought just sort of struck me as you were saying that there, you know, there's good people on nearly every side of every discussion. And to me, it's like, well, hold on, like, you know, it's not as if it, you know, the world's black and white, there's good and bad people, like all this sort of stuff. Obviously, some people take certain things too far, let's put maybe it that way. But at the same time, to me, this is a little bit about, you know, extracting the good from everyone as well. It's about recognising that we're going to have miscommunications at times. Maybe that's on us as well as it's on the other person too. So if we can come to terms with that, yeah, maybe go into maybe a little bit of this sort of stuff if we can reflect on exactly how we're going. It doesn't even necessarily have to be at the time. It could be afterwards and say, oh, you know what, maybe I'd like that one back if I was to uh, have a look at my mentalising copybook and uh, <laughs> maybe I could have uh, gone about that slightly differently. So... Dad, thanks so much for chatting with me about all this today. There's so much we uh, didn't even get through. I'm, I think we're going to need another episode. So we'll uh, chat about this again next week and I'm already looking forward to it. Looking forward to that, Rowan, and also looking forward to seeing how maybe even some of our conversations about a whole range of different things, whether elements of this topic come in in different ways, because I find that once you've reflected on this topic, it really comes into your mind in a whole range of different situations and just adds to that openness and interest in how other people see things. Well, absolutely. Yeah, as you say, I think, you know, with many elements of psychology, once you develop that awareness and understanding, you almost can't help kind of fall in that direction a little bit. And I've certainly found that, you know, looking into this over the last week or so, you just can't help 
almost have it in the back of your mind and be a little bit more aware of, I suppose, you know, where you could improve in certain areas as well. And we'll keep going next time, Dad. But thanks so much for today. I look forward to it. Look forward to it, Rowan.